HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by EscapeMaker.com. Visit a farm. Escape through the net. Visit EscapeMaker.com for more. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Uh, Each week on the air on The Farm Report, we talk about the ins and outs of food production, um, farming, and kind of need-to-knows in the consumption space. Uh, Off air, I am the executive director of the Heritage Radio Network. And as my regular listeners, I'm sure are familiar, we have been talking a lot about the meat industry the last few months. Um, Just back from Colorado was a great week um, out in Denver, hearing the ins and outs of the meat industry from slow food delegates across the globe. So definitely stay tuned. for more from the station on that, got a great um, interview with Temple Grandin regarding uh, animal welfare that's up on the homepage now, so make sure you listen to that. Temple is a do not miss, um, so highly, highly recommending that interview. Um, today, we are kind of kicking off an area I'm going to be exploring for the next few months, which is a corollary, of course, to the meat industry, uh, that being dairy. June is Dairy Month, and to kind of get us situated, we are joined on the line by Beth Chittenden of Dutch Hollow Farm up in Columbia County. Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be part of it today. Happy Dairy Month. Yes, it's a great month to be drinking and eating dairy products. (laughs) So why don't we start by talking a little bit about Dutch Hollow Farm? You guys are proud um, Jersey cow farmers, is that right? That's true. That is true. We have um, we actually milk 700 cows on a dairy farm. It's a family farm. Um, my husband and his two brothers own the farm with their parents. So all together, there are 16 Chittenden family members that um, live off this farm, as well as um, three other families that are employees of the farm. So- um We've been in business since 1976 here on the farm, and we started out with 55 cows. But as as time came along and everybody got married and the families grew, the farm had to grow also. So along with milking 700 cows, we grow the crops for all the cows to eat, which is about 2,000 acres. And on the farm, we also have created a discovery center so that consumers can come in and learn about the dairy industry and what goes on behind those doors and how we interact with the cows and uh, how things have changed over the years. 
Yeah, well, I definitely want to talk more about the Dairy Discovery Center a little later in the show, along with a kind of interesting uh, trip that you had down to New York City recently. But before we get there, um, I want to talk a little bit more about how your farm is situated in relation to kind of other dairy producers in the state of New York. Um, so as you mentioned, the farm is actually supporting a number of families and, and milking 600 cows. Um, and the Jersey cow. So I wonder if you can kind of break that down a little bit for us um, in comparison to kind of the state averages. My sense is that um, the most dairy farms in the New York area are are a little bit smaller with regards to number of farms. Um, is that the case? Um, um, sorry. No, <laughs> I'm sorry. You go ahead. So um, the average size of a dairy farm in New York State is about 250 milking cows. Um, still, 98% of the dairy farms in New York State are family-owned operations. Yeah, I think so, that, that's like such an interesting thing. For I mean, that was like a, a learning for me is, is understanding that like a, a family farm often I feel like means families farm, um, where you're yes, looking at kind of or, one space to support multiple families. Um, another term that we've come to use here is we are a farm of families. So, um, yeah, the farm has many families that work together, and, and, and that's generally the case. And then what about the fact that you guys have such a long history working with Jersey cows? Um, are, my, my sense as well is that, like, Jerseys aren't the traditional dairy cow in the state, but maybe I'm totally off base. No, you're absolutely right. The Jersey cow is a unique cow. It's smaller than the black and white cows. Jerseys are brown, um, and they produce milk that's a little higher in protein and a little higher in butter fat than the conventional black and white Holstein cows. Um, we are the... Um, largest or second largest Jersey herd in New York State. So our milk is used primarily for making dairy products such as cheese. Um, almost all of the milk that leaves our farm is going to someplace to make a dairy product rather than being consumed as whole milk or, you know, bottled as a fluid milk. So the Jersey, using the Jersey milk, you can make 10% more cheese over using Holstein milk just because of the components that the Jerseys have. So, like, the components being, like, the proteins and the fats versus, like, the water ratio. Is that right? Correct. Correct. So, then, for, uh, like herds that are all Jersey, you know, you guys work with Agrimark, which is like a large dairy cooperative. Um, many people probably are familiar with them more um, in their in their cheese counters as Cabot, um, Cabot cheeses. Um, so I'm guessing there's like a whole separate kind of like truck run that hits just the Jersey spaces. And, yeah. and, and so is it a completely um, like separate production facilities that like once the milk leaves your farm, it's going like you know, they're, the the fluid milk and the cheese making or um, ice cream making are happening in, like, different parts, or? Our milk um, has three specific destinations that it goes to. Now, within a milk truck that picks it up, there are separate compartments. Ah, okay. So they can put all of our milk in one compartment, or we have enough milk to fill up the whole truck. Whatever the people who are needing it. And um, some of it comes right down there to Manhattan every night. Really? Yes. Uh, Beecher's Handmade Cheese, which is on Broadway and 20th Street, is um, one destination every single night. A tractor trailer comes down and unloads our milk, as well as one other farmer's milk, to make their handmade cheese. So um, another destination is Cabot that it goes to. And a third destination is Hudson Valley Fresh, where they use our milk to make sour cream and yogurt. So when you're so, you're looking at, like, milk from Jersey cows, is the payment structure also different than Holstein's? Well, the structure is the same, um, and the pricing is the same, because 
you know, you are paid on the volume of milk that you produce, Mm -hmm. and then you are paid on so much for how much protein is in your milk, and then you're paid for how much solids are in your milk. Okay. So for a Holstein farm, the majority of their check is coming from the volume of milk, where ours, we get a larger um, piece of our income coming from the amount of protein and the amount of butter fat that's in there. So um, we, Jersey cows do not produce as much milk as the Holstein cows, the black and white cows. So it's being more concentrated. Um, we generally get $2 to $3, 100 pounds more than a Holstein herd. Got it. But we don't produce as much milk as a whole thing hurts. Right. That okay. So that that makes sense. Um, well, so I want to talk a little bit about kind of Jersey genetics. So I know that's another component of, of the of the farm business is um, kind of working to enhance and, and have really great genetics on the farm. I remember sitting um, sitting in the kind of office room of um, Kenyon Hill Farm when I lived up in Shushan in Washington County. And one of the things that always struck me is that the walls there were lined with these kind of cow pinups in the same way if you were like at, you know, in a, in a high school boys room or a bar, there might be like pinups of like women in bikinis, except these were like archetype cows. So I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about, um, what makes like a pinup Jersey? Like if we're driving down and trying to like look at a cow and evaluate it, what are the kind of things that you want to point our eyes to? And and what are the areas that you're kind of really working on or known for at um, Dutch Hollow? Um, So to begin with, every single one of our cows is registered, just kind of like a dog might be registered in their, you know, in their breed, all of our jerseys are registered. So we've kept track of all of their ancestry. We also keep track of how much milk they produce um, every single day and how much butter, fat, and protein they produce. And um, with the new technology today, that makes it a whole lot easier to do that than we used to. So many, many records are kept on our cows. Also, how long they live. Um, and things like how many heifer calves they have. But all of this information is compiled. So the things that um, people are looking at when they want to um, purchase a cow or if they would like to, everything, well, everything is bred artificially. Right. Um, we don't have bulls on the farm anymore, mostly due to health and safety reasons of both people and animals. And so there's a whole other business out there where you can buy semen and to, to breed your cows with. So information, we want information about those bulls that you're going to breed to so that we know if it's a good bull or if it would be a good mating with my cow. It's really selective mating. And, you know, you would like a cow that is producing um, a lot of milk. You would like a cow that's producing milk that is high in butter fat. Um, you want a cow that's going to have a longevity, that's going to stay in your herd for a very long time. What is a long time? It, like, what's a good run for a milker? Uh, Jerseys are known for their longevity, which is um, if they live six, seven, eight, nine years, you know, those, those are good cows. Okay. Um, the the other, generally, Holstein's average only um, three to four years old, where Jerseys live longer. And and so kind of like the milking lifespan of a cow, it's not the same as the cow's lifespan per se. But like, so there's like an evaluation that happens because you, you are able to keep such good records where like when the, the milk, the 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 milk production kind of drops off where you decide to essentially like retire that cow. Correct. Okay. Correct. All that information, it is recorded exactly how many months she, she produces milk. And, um, if, uh, if we have to sell her because she's, uh, no longer productive, we also, that's also recorded. Is it something that we could not get her bread back? Is it because her she can't walk, she has bad legs, you know, she has trouble getting up and down? All those um, 
things are put into the equation when you're looking at purchasing a bull to breed your cow to. So I would look at a cow and say, okay, I like my cow that I have, but um, I would like her to produce milk that's a little higher in butter fat. Mm -hmm. So I would look for a sire that has a mother that has produced that and has other daughters that has produced um, records that are higher in butter fat. Um, one of the really new traits or traits that are more common today that people are looking at is they want to have pulled cows, meaning they're born without horns, naturally pulled cows. Huh. And um, that prevents us from having to remove those horns. Um, it's, it's not fun to do that, and the animals don't like it, and it's, uh, it's an animal care issue. So if we can naturally have natural animals born without any horns, that saves the animal, you know, the, the problem of going through getting rid of them and the parent and the people. So that's one of the new traits. And Dutch Hollow Farm is, was started uh, in 1976, and back in the 1950s, my father-in-law and his family farm started breeding for polled cows. So that isn't something that the Chittendons have been breeding for for years, and now that um, more and more farmers are looking to buy cows or get cows that are um, pulled, they look to animals in our herd and sires that have come from our herd, which are the, the bulls that come from our herd. So I, I think it's like it, it becomes very obvious listening to you talk that there are a lot of different components when you're thinking about what makes a good cow. And I have kind of uh, two follow-up questions. One, you mentioned that all of the cows are registered. Is that kind of standard practice or is that like a thing that you guys do because you have this other kind of genetic um, component to your work? Um. I'm not going to say that everybody does it, and that's for, for sure. Right. But um, I think there's still a lot of people, 60% maybe, mm -hmm. of the farms still register their animals so that they can get that information, they can put that information out, and it's available so that um, if they want, they, they're doing these breedings and they are mating these cows, that at some point they could hopefully put a cow, you know, sell a bull, so that can be used for other people for semen as well. Got it. So it's kind of adding to your like, what like adding to like your op options essentially. Um, so and then if we're talking, you mentioned um, that you're kind of some of the different traits that um, lead to kind of the long term kind of health uh, of the animal. Um, like having good. I think what comes to mind for me is like having good legs or or good feet, or kind of udder size. Can you talk a little bit about some of the physical attributes and why, if we care about great milk, we should also care about the cow's feet, essentially? Well, um, if a, a cow can give all the milk in the world they want, however, if they can't get up and walk because the, the bone structure of their leg is such that it prevents them from walking, you know, it'd be like, somebody having to be in a wheelchair all the time, we can't get the milk from them. Right. So you've got to have all these traits working together to make a really good cow. You can't just have one great trait. So when you're mating cows, you know, you have your number one trait you're looking for, but you also need to keep your eyes on these other things to make you have a very functional cow, a cow that's going to live longer, and you want them to live longer because, heck, they're two years old when they have their first baby, so you've already invested two years, which is about $2,000, into these animals mm -hmm. before they even start giving you milk. And then um, if they're only in the herd for two or three years, you didn't get the most out of them that you wanted to. You want to get, you know, five, six years. And one of the important things and one of the things that many cows leave herds for is because we need cows to breed and have a calf every 12 months. Right. If they cannot be, if they're not conceiving um, and carrying a calf, lots of times that's why they leave the herd is because they're not bred. And a cow only melts about 10 months, 10 or 11 months after they have their baby. 
So if she doesn't have a baby um, twelve month, every 12 months, she's going to be on the farm and not really producing any milk, which is very um, inefficient for any farmer. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's, like, interesting to lay this out because, um, you know, I think there's like a tendency amongst folks to kind of like romanticize the farm space and not really think about it um, as a farm business. And I think when you're looking at an animal and having to keep your eye on so many different um, traits that it really speaks to um, from a genetic standpoint, that kind of animal welfare protocols. And this is something that kind of came up when I was out in Denver last week at Slow Meat. We were talking about um, poultry and chickens. And essentially chickens, because of their size and how short their meat chickens, that is, lifespan is, that they lend themselves to a much greater degree of um, modification. And and I would say, I would probably use the word uh, abuse, essentially, um, because the because they can they can kind of handle it, so you can essentially breed for like the very large breasts, and you have these corollary problems of the chickens having a skeletal structure that can't really support them, but they can kind of make it stumbling across the finish line of their life and end up on your dinner plate in a way that that just doesn't work in the dairy space. Like you can't kind of breed no, you, for one specific they can't trait. Do that. You're right. Um, you, you know, our goal is to keep them alive and to keep them productive as long as they possibly can. We do everything we can to keep them comfortable as well as breeding genetically for them. I mean, we are, we are putting these cows, they're sleeping on mattresses. Um, you know, we have fans on them. Our cows have pedicures so that we keep their feet short so that it keeps them healthy. Um, not only are we breeding for a healthy cow, we care for a healthy cow because to feed one cow a, a day is $4.50. Yeah. And we can't just have them, you know, if we're just feeding them and they're not producing any milk, we're going to go bankrupt yeah, in a hurry. Yeah, the math, the math adds up really quickly. And, and I think, too, it's like something that... Um, you know, to me, it's like really starting from that like very beginning point, really looking at the genetics um, and how genetics play a role in the kind of animal welfare conversation and how it, I think it's so interesting to me in the dairy industry that like it only works if your animals are across the board, like healthy and, and happy, like by virtue of, of what you're trying to do. Um, and and not to be not not to be like avoiding the subject, but not to dwell on it for too long. I do want to talk a little bit about um, when an animal leaves the herd. Like what, what? Where does it go? Like what are the options? I mean, I'm guessing it, it goes into the meat market for hamburger. But are the is that like the primary space, or are there other spaces? No, that primarily it goes into the meat market. But there, a dairy cow who has been alive and has been producing milk. Um, for six, seven years, and let's say that it would be equivalent to somebody who's 70 or 80 in our world. Mm-hmm. Their meat really is not a top quality. The older an animal gets, the tougher their meat is, um, and it's just uh, not something that most humans then eat. So most of the meat is then used for dog food um, or other avenues that need the meat. However, every single part of that cow is used in our world. There's shampoo, cosmetics, a lot of medicine comes from a cow when it goes to a slaughterhouse. There is nothing left over from any of that cow. Shoes, leather, you name it. It comes from the cow. Um, And if we did not have these cows in our world, we would be missing many, many things. Well, I think we are doing some like dairy discovering of our own here. So I want to kind of transition now to the Dairy Discovery Center because it's so interesting to me that you guys have built out um, this space to that's designed for folks who are not from the industry, um, what you know, folks like my myself or school groups to come up and learn a little bit more about. Uh, about the world of dairy, what was the impetus for that? Like, why make that a part of your work? Well, we can produce milk, and we can have a farm and and be very happy on our own little island here, but if we don't have people purchasing our milk, 
and understanding what we're doing, they're going to be, and we've seen this happen, people against dairy products. There's a lot of misconceptions out there. They think we're mistreating the animals. And we're like, here, no, really, we're not. Come look. I want you to come see how we, and once I explain it to them, once they come see the cows, they leave with a totally different um, attitude, and suddenly they feel safe again. They feel like they can drink milk and eat dairy products when they get the true, full story. Um, farmers are only 2% of the population, so it's so easy for misconceptions to be started somewhere, um, and a farmer never get to correct them. And so we need to talk to the public to help them understand so that they will continue to purchase milk and dairy products. And I, I think, too, there's something interesting about um, it sounds like your work going a little bit both ways. Can you talk a little bit about the trip down to the city with the uh, yeah. with the young yeah, with some of the young the youth from your well, I don't even know. Was it a, 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 the program or? Yeah, you lay it out for us. OK, so um, I work with another young lady um, educating kids who are growing up on farms, but they want to be in the agriculture industry, but they don't know all the careers that are involved. Well, along with our careers in agriculture, we need to look at our customer, because in any business, you need to have a market. And what I wanted to do was to take these youth, 14 to 16 years old, to New York City to show them these are our customers. These are the people that we need to get our product to. They're important to us. Um, Because, like I said before, if we don't have a market, then why do we need a farm? So that was our point of coming to New York City. Um, Here, where we live in our little world, in our little bubble, we think, you know, milk and dairy products are great. Everybody has milk with dinner. You can stop at any corner store, and there's gallons of milk to buy. We have parades to celebrate the dairy industry. We have dairy princesses that promote agriculture and the dairy industry and the goodness of drinking milk. And when we come into New York City, none of the farmers have come down there and brought that information there. You know, there's no dairy princesses there. Um, and there's no dairy farmers to tell you or to show you what they're doing on their farm. So there seems to be a very large disconnect. And we were, you know, they were very surprised in contrast to where we live. Every corner store does not carry milk. You know, um, when you ask somebody about milk, they they don't know really the differences between dairy milk and the milk alternatives that are there and where they come from and the safety of, of drinking or eating, you know, drinking them. Um, and that's something that it's so important that we need to convey to them these kids they just take it for granted that everybody wants milk. Wants milk. Yeah, that's definitely how I grew up. I have to say I've been, uh, since February, I've been training Muay Thai, the Thai kickboxing. And one of the one of the kind of best recovery drinks from that type of a workout is a container of chocolate milk. And I know Cornell has been doing some research with uh, some of their student athletes on, on chocolate milk as a performance enhancing recovery drink. And I would I would echo I think what um, what your kids saw where it's been really funny to me popping into stores I feel like I used to be able to go and get a carton of milk wherever and now there is like the chocolate soy or something called muscle milk I don't really know what that is um, and other kind of like non uh, other like milk alternative or um, like I don't I want to don't want to say necessarily fake milk but that's kind of how it feels and tastes to me. Um, so it's been it's been interesting even to like have reflect on that personally um, as I find myself kind of like looking more for milk or just going into a store and the milk section now is filled with so many new products that I feel like um, I, I'm like, where you know, where is this all coming from now? You can get coconut milk and soy milk and, and almond milk and rice milk and, and milk milk. Um, it must be like totally disorienting to be confronted with such a like panoply of options. And, and the kids were just amazed because 
in the grocery stores where we live, they don't see those types of things as much. There is usually a large section of dairy milk, and it was the opposite when we came to New York City. There's only very small sections of dairy milk compared to the other alternative beverages that are in the store. And um, when I have mentioned it to a farmer before, he's like, are you kidding me? People aren't really going to drink that stuff. And I'm like, oh, yes, they do. You know, where we live, when you go into a coffee shop, basically they ask you whole milk or low fat. They don't ask you, do you want dairy milk, soy milk, almond milk? All these other alternatives are options. And we are losing, the dairy industry is losing a big part of a market with this. And we need to tell people milk has nine essential nutrients in it. It's full of calcium. It's full of protein. There's um, eight grams of protein in whole milk. Um, and it's very digestible. There's lactate for people who can't digest the lactose. And even cheddar cheese is lactose-free for people who have trouble. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's definitely, it's like definitely kind of like interesting. And I, and I, and I don't want to get too much into the dietary stuff because I like never want to be in a space where I'm like discounting someone's like personal experience with regards to consuming different products. For me personally, right. you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a whole milk drinker from, from way back, but I do want to touch on, and we just have a few minutes left here, but one of the things that I think is very interesting for New York state in particular, and I think this is probably reflected across the country is when we're thinking about the dairy industry, um, you know, there's a very long history there in our country, but also this idea that dairy farms support more broadly the agriculture infrastructure of a region. So, for example, in Columbia County, because, you know, dairy producers are large consumers of um, kind of tractors and tractor supply services and uh, veterinary services. And some of those kind of like ancillary things that become really necessary to other types of agriculture production, whether you're producing kind of vegetables or you're raising chicken or you're raising pigs, that in order to have a robust ag infrastructure, you, you dairy plays a big role. And I wonder if you can just kind of talk a little bit about where you see the landscape of that right now and whether you're feeling kind of worried or hopeful um, uh, many people don't really, I mean, think about it in the way that you just mentioned it, but yes, dairy farming happens 12 months of the year, 365 days. When you're growing vegetables, you have a much smaller window um, that you're growing vegetables in and selling them to. Um, the same is true for fruit. So we're providing services locally all year round. 80% of the income that comes into a dairy farm is spent within 50 miles of the, the radius of the farm. People don't realize things like that. We are the biggest fuel, the fuel company that provides fuel for our tractors. We're their biggest customer. You know, not that that's a great thing, but it's keeping them going. Um, we have 15 employees here that all need to go shopping locally, that all buy gas, that all buy bread, that um, shop in the local stores. All that adds up, as well as getting the milk from our farm to all the places it has to go is a daily event. And it takes another company, a trucking company, to pick up that milk, which takes a driver to drive the milk you know, to another location. And then at at the processing plant, there's another whole industry of the processing of the milk, whether it's into cheese or putting it into a bottle. You've got, you know, 25 or 30 more people being employed in that industry as well before the milk even goes to consumers. So there's a, there's a huge economic impact that dairy farmers have to the local community. Um, New York State is third in the nation for producing milk. And without dairy farmers in New York State, the local economic economy is, is in trouble. Yeah. We've seen some, some, if several farms in one area go out of business, it is going to be a huge impact on that entire town. 
Yeah, they're really cascading effects. Absolutely. Um, Well, definitely lots of food for thought, helping us kind of um, tuck in a little bit to um, what we should be thinking about as we observe Dairy Month. Beth, thank you so much for taking some time out to join us. It's been really interesting chatting with you, um, and and I really appreciate your your insights and the work that you guys are doing. Thanks, and uh, we'd be happy to have, have you visit or anybody else visit Dutch Hollow Farm in the future. Awesome. So check them out, guys. Uh, you can find them at jerseysites.usjersey.com. Some great pictures, lots more information on the farm, lots of space to get kind of questions answered and learn a little bit more about the Discovery Center. We are going to take just a short break, and we'll be back um, just after the break with the folks from Fresh Kills Farm for our Escape Maker segment. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Let me tell you now a story that your blood will chill to hear. Story of the day when I first met my greatest fear. I was traveling down on flight 66. At 6 p.m. that day While sitting in my window seat I felt the floor Gay Sure, a long way down to fall. She can bet on my way down, I was sure to count them all. Now and then I sort of did regret my choice to fly. Ryan lost my luggage and I was gonna die. It happened to me, it can happen to you. Just take the bus or take the train. And remember the day when I fell through. Visit a farm. Log on to escapemaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips, including orchards, farms, and wineries. Come by Escape Maker's Yellow Tent in Grow NYC's Green Markets and pick up a guide to local agritourism escapes to the Green Market's own farmers and producers. Better yet, attend EscapeMaker.com's fourth local food and travel expo on May 2nd at Brooklyn Borough Hall featuring destinations in Brooklyn, New York State, New Jersey, Vermont, and Pennsylvania. Sample cheese, maple products, beer, and wine from Brooklyn and beyond, and free apples courtesy of the New York Apple Association. See you there. We are students at Girls Prep, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. And we are back. You're tuned into the Farm Report, and we are jumping into our um, exploration with escapemaker.com. Uh, today we are on the line with Mark Doyle, who is the business manager up at Fresh Kills Farm in Hopewell Junction. Mark, welcome to the show. Oh, good afternoon to you. I'm so glad to be on with you. So I am excited to hear a little bit more about Fresh Kills Farm. I'm definitely um, a little bit familiar with you guys because um, I know that you're big suppliers to Good Eggs, which is a uh, a Brooklyn-based grocery delivery service that is um, located just around the corner from our studio. Um, but excited to hear more um, about the background of the farm. So I, as I understand it, it's been in the Morgenthau family for the last 100 years. And um, you guys have somewhat recently transitioned from a primarily orchard operation to more of a diversified farm. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why that transition and and why why um why 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 now essentially or why the last couple of years like as it's taken place well yes exactly um the 
the family has owned it as primarily as a production orchard for all those years. And um, the farming in the Hudson Valley has gone through its ups and downs, and during the 70s and 80s were particularly tough times. Um, the farm actually became a pick-your-own orchard in about 1965, after, interestingly, after a very big hailstorm that damaged the crop uh, so that they were no, the apples were no longer um, of adequate quality to go to the wholesale market. So they opened it up to the public on a pick-your-own basis and had tremendous success. So ever since then, uh, we've gone forward, the farm has gone forward, um, being open to the public for picking all kinds of fruits, and the diversification of crops uh, started then. Now, in 2007, 2000, actually 2006, really, Josh Morgenthau, the uh, youngest boy, ma male of the Morgenthau family, uh, Bob Morgenthau, who was DA in, in Manhattan for so many years, um, as his father. But Josh, having grown up on the farm, became obviously very, very attached to it and excited about the, you know, the potential of the farm. They, at that time, had leased it uh, to other operators, and he was seeing, you know, these operators not, A, not taking particularly good care of the farm, and B, um, not making the best use of it either. So started growing uh, some tomatoes and vegetables and took them down to the city markets and, you know, was enthralled with the potential on the business side, but also the response from, from customers. So from that point, especially 2008, uh, I came on board, and the attention, what, intention was to uh, really create a sustainable farm business with quality, the care of the soil and the environment, and attention to the needs of our customers being sort of the prime components of our mission. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, and speaking of mission, you guys have a quite extensive kind of mission statement um, that's laid out on your website. I wonder if you can give us some of the, like, top-line points. Well, again, the, the, the fundamental underlying point is to, to come up with a business model that works to make us a thoroughly sustainable farm operation, and that means not only looking after the land and the environment, making sure that our soils can keep being productive and uh, fertile, but also that, you know, economically we have a business that is making a profit and able to employ people um, and give them a good, a good wage and a good living. So all of those things have to work together, including, and I, I think this is really important, that it fits in with the community that this is... Uh, a farm that is appreciated and uh, needed and, and wanted uh, within the community. And so when you, when you look at the, I call it, you know, sort of the, the ecosystem, and I really mean to include, you know, the human component of that, I want that, the goal is to have that ecosystem be as complete and sustainable as possible. So in, in that respect, when it comes to actual farming practices, uh, we have employed, where we can, um, the strict organic protocol, and this encompasses our vegetables and also our berries, but also a small uh, section, about seven acres of the orchard, where we're really venturing into organic orcharding, which uh, many people in the Northeast have tried and, and given up. But our, our intention is to make it work, and we're finding that it's certainly difficult, but we're learning every year how to do it uh, a little better, and I'm sure that we'll attain the goal at some point. Well, yeah, it's like always, always moving forward. Well, I'm, I'm just realizing here, I botched the name. Um, I referred to Fresh Kill Farm. Um, I have, like, I guess the Staten Island landfill on the mind for some reason, which but, but kind of brings up an interesting opportunity to talk about Fish Kill as the name of the farm, what what does that mean? Where does that name come from? Uh, very good. I'm so glad you said it. You know, I was not sure that my I was hearing it correctly <laughs> on my phone. No, that was, to um, it was totally yeah. my bad. I did a, a graduate research project on the Fresh Kills um, conversion from a landfill to a park, and so I think I just 
Yeah, I had the wrong kill on the brain. So let's let's circle back. Let's bring it back to the fish kill. Um, fish kill. Yeah. Uh, so um, if, uh, many people ask this question because uh, the word kill um, is upsetting. But, in fact, the Hudson Valley was originally settled by the Dutch. And um, although it's spelled differently, um, the literal phonetic translation for a kill uh, kale is a is a creek, a small creek, and um, the Dutch also don't spell fish f i s h; they spell it v i s. So it was a a, a fish kale, uh, to use the Dutch. Um, I'm South African of descent, so I, I grew up speaking a version of Dutch, so the second language, um, and and it's really fun to see that uh, Dutch heritage comes through in, in this area. And, uh, of course, those people were very attuned to agriculture and the environment. Yeah, no, absolutely. We were actually speaking um, with Beth Chittenden um, in the first half of the show from Dutch Hollow Farm, um, which was also named after uh, and in like in recognition of the large kind of Dutch community in that area. So no fish being killed at the fish kill farms. Um, so don't don't worry. I'm going to assuage your worries there. But lots of other great stuff to do. I mean, you guys have a very interesting kind of you pick CSA. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how folks can get involved in that and, and where that idea came from? So this, we, we find the CSA to be a wonderful way to bring people closer to the farm operation and really make them feel part of our, our business. And what we offer with, a, with our CSA that's a little different to many others in the Valley is the combination with fruits and berries. Um, and so we, we do find that people very much appreciate that. The, and naturally... With the fruits, it doesn't really apply to the vegetable side as much, um, but the fruit is essentially a pick-your-own-component uh, of the CSA share for the most part. So people are, who we actually have a pickup on Friday afternoon and Saturday morning for the on-farm share, we, we do pr- provide a drop-off in Brooklyn at the Park Slope, in Park Slope at the Old Stone House. Um, for about around right around 90 members down there. Wow. But those people, of course, are not able to drive up to the farm every week, so they have their shares taken, you know, picked and taken down to them. Um, but they will frequently, we'll, we'll find them visiting the farm and, you know, uh, introducing themselves to us here and as, as members down in, in Brooklyn. But... It is indeed an opportunity for CSA members to get the very uh, freshest fruit uh, straight off the the vine or the uh, or the tree and and experience that really intense burst of flavor that you can't get if it's uh, sort of being pre-picked. Yeah, I am. I always feel like, um, and this is true confessions here, they should have like a way in, way out on the you pick operations because. I definitely tend to go in a little bit hungry and come out a little bit too full. Um, well, that being said, um, anything that's coming up over the course of the summer months that people should be marking their calendar for or looking forward to? Yes. So we do. I want to tell you a little bit more about the, the pick your own sort of season, and then we'll sort of spell out some of these dates. Yeah. We, we are um, right now picking strawberries, and that seasonal quickly sort of draw, draw to a close as it gets warm, and the cherries and the blueberries will get going. It sort of merges into peaches from that point on, peaches and plums. And, in fact, uh, we have very early variety of apples, a fuller red that starts um, mid to late July. Um, but through, through August and certainly into the middle, into September and October, really in the thick of apple and pear season, so that's the, the sort of general layout of the of the seasons and the crops. Um, we are this weekend on the 14th uh, having a, a pick your own strawberry festival where we have the big takeover band coming uh, to play and our grill running, which is typical for typical for us on these uh, festival weekends to have live music and um, our our grill shack going. We have uh, a wonderful uh, Jamaican 
crew that come and help us with the farm and uh, have some specialty food that they love to, to provide to the public. Um, so that's the 14th. On the July 4th, we're having another uh, Independence Day uh, celebration, July 25th, a midsummer harvest festival where we'll certainly have peaches and all kinds of hay rides, um, but blueberries primarily. August 15th, we have a rather fun event we call Peachtopia. <laughs> again, again, with live music and hay rides, etc. And by the September 5th, we're into every weekend, both days of the weekend, uh, having live music and, and all of the things that people associate with uh, pick your own harvest weekends, especially the um, hot cider donuts as well. Oh, man. Sounds like a great lineup of stuff. I definitely am particularly intrigued by the idea of having authentic Jamaican food in a Hudson Valley farm setting. That sounds awesome. Uh, well, Mark, thank you so much for taking a little time away to, to give us an update from the farm. I really appreciate you giving us a chance to check in. And I very much appreciate the opportunity to come on your show. Thank you very much. So, folks, if you want to follow more of their work, definitely check them out online. They are Fishkill Farm. Um, located up in the Hudson Valley. If you're in the uh, kind of Brooklyn, New York area, you can definitely check out their CSA um, or find some of their products via Good Eggs. This, um, like all of our Escape Maker segments, is brought to us by EscapeMaker.com. Check them out if you got a free weekend and are looking for something fun to do in the New York metro area. Lots of great trips and um, tips on making the most of our regional uh, egg infrastructure. And now is definitely the time to do it. So, don't delay. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Heritage Radio Network. You can find a lot of other great shows um, by visiting the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. I want to do a special plug here for Inside School Food. We were up at PS34 uh, earlier this morning, kind of talking about their new um, compostable tray program. So look for some of that from Laura Stanley on her great show, which airs every Monday morning. And then check me out on Twitter if you want to follow more. It's Aaron underscore Fairbanks. Um, and then the radio is Heritage underscore Radio. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org heritage radio network is a 501c3 nonprofit. to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening